every entrepreneur has a story. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, where each episode, your host, Brian Carney, will share a drink with a successful business owner and have them discuss their unique journey, gaining insight on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and different ways to get there. Brian isn't just a beer nerd. He's also the co-founder of River's Edge Advisors, a financial planning firm headquartered in Delaware, specializing in working with business owners. It's time to pour yourself a drink and enjoy a happy half hour with an entrepreneur. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur. I am your host, Brian Carney. My guests today are Joe Norris and Nick Martin. Joe and Nick co-founded Carbon Reform. The company is a green tech company that helps CO2 permanently sequester it and also filter other airborne contaminants to provide clean indoor air. The company is fiercely dedicated to the mission of clean air for people and the planet. Joe and Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. I'm really excited to talk to you guys. Uh, my first green initiative company. So this is kind of, uh, this is going to be interesting. That's great. I yeah. think um, that's one of the things that might change over time. Agreed. We hear often that if you're not already working in climate, you will be within the, the next 10 years. That's going to be something that we certainly talk about today because I'm, I'm interested to hear about that. And for our show, I'm going to be trying a Sierra Nevada Sunny Little Thing Citrus Wheat Ale. Now, Sierra Nevada makes one of my favorite beers called a Hazy Little Thing. So this is an offshoot of that. So we'll give this a rating at the end. Joe, I know you uh, that you have a, a, one of my favorite drinks. So what, what are you going to be drinking? Um, I am drinking a Spindrift Sparkling Water, um, which is mango orange flavored. It's pretty good so far. For favorite Spindrift flavor. What is it? I am actually new to Spindrift. Okay. This is something that our summer intern bought at the store because they didn't have ahas, which is what my typical go-to is. <laughs> um, and she she kind of turned me on to it. So this is my first flavor, but it's really good. I'm not usually a citrus seltzer gal, but um, I like this one so far. Love it. That's great. And, and then Nick, I know you've got a special uh, concoction that you've made yourself. So what do you what do you got? Yeah, we're both non-alcoholic today because we are about to embark on an hour and a half of interviews. So we're <laughs> staying sharp. But uh, I, I make my own cold brew now. So I got some of my little jug here. Uh, just ground my, I think it was some Colombian roast last night at the grocery store. So Love it's it. pretty good. Uh, I'm, I'm all jazzed up now for this, this interview. Well, perfect. Well, cheers. <laughs> Looking forward Cheers. to talking to you guys. Well, first, tell, tell me a little bit about your company. Yeah, so Carbon Reform is, we kind of like to say it's a, a clean tech, uh, health tech hybrid. Um, so we're definitely in the climate space in that we are doing direct air capture of carbon dioxide. Um, but the, uh, the venue is very different from other like climate tech companies. So um, we are decarbonizing the built environment mm -hmm. by directly capturing and sequestering CO2 from indoor air, um, primarily in commercial buildings. And um, as a part of that service, we also provide um, comprehensive indoor air quality support. So um, we do baseline testing of the indoor air quality in a building, and that includes CO2. 
um, but it also includes volatile organic compounds, particulate matter, um, and other potential pollutants. Yeah. Um, and then we mitigate that through our retrofit device. So we are a hardware company, um, but we do have a software component because we provide ongoing monitoring services. So that's kind of what we're doing. And there's um, the direct CO2 sequestration benefit on the carbon side, but there's also an energy savings that comes with oh. Um, installing the device because we're providing indoor air quality. So essentially when you clean the indoor air in a space, uh, you're able to reduce the amount of heating and cooling of outside air that you need to bring in. So there's a, a kind of 3x benefit of the direct carbon sequestration in the form of upstream energy savings. Okay. Well, so that's fascinating to me. Now, I'm not even going to pretend to understand how this even happens. So like, let talk super basic level. How does carbon even get into the building? And then what's the process it goes through for you to clean it and make it better? So primarily the, um, the source of CO2 inside of a building um, is people. So oh. you're breathing. Um, me in my office right here, I can triple the amount of CO2 within an hour. Really? Um, just from breathing. Yeah. So um, because especially commercial buildings are getting made tighter, um, meaning that there aren't as many places where air can um, unintentionally pass in and out, yeah. uh, that sometimes leads to a CO2 buildup. And it's different across the entire building. So that's where our monitoring comes in. Um, so we'll do a baseline test of um, what does the CO2 concentration in each area of the building look like? Um, where should we be focusing our efforts? And then, um, like I said, we have a hardware that we install. So it's a retrofit. You don't have to replace anything um, in your existing system. Um, and we essentially take some of the return air. So that's the air that's already passed through the space. It's already seen the people. The people have added the carbon dioxide <laughs> to it. So the, um, the concentration is higher, which also is more efficient of a process for CO2 capture um, as compared to like doing it outside where CO2 levels are around between 400 and 450 parts per million. Um, indoors, they can be upwards of 1,000, sometimes 2,000 parts per million. Wow. So with chemistry, it just makes it a lot easier to um, grab and, and capture that CO2. That's really interesting. So you, you bring up chemistry. Is that your background? Like, how do you figure this out? Sort of. So Nick, do you want to provide kind of your background first and then I can go into mine? Yeah, Joe and I traded academic spaces. Um, I'm actually the, the chemist, chemical engineer by training. I went to the University of Delaware for that. Okay. Um, but based on just experiences I had after school and where I saw more of my passions leaning, I've definitely leaned more into the business development finance side of the startup. Okay. Um, and Joe had an opposite experience. Do you want to talk about how you ended up as the uh, technical co-founder? Yeah. So, um, so my background primarily uh, in undergrad was um, on the sustainability and economics side. So I do, I have degrees in both of those. Um, you know, I was also focused on kind of earth sciences, I would say. So geology, um, good amount of you know math and physics involved but wasn't really like that interested in it at the time um and then i did my masters in climate and society um okay. and that was at columbia university as part of the earth institute um and that was a focus on like atmospheric studies and what is climate science but then also how does climate change impact people especially mm -hmm. the most vulnerable people yeah. um 
And so kind of taking that knowledge and applying it, that's when I started to pivot towards engineering. So um, I began a PhD afterwards in uh, material science and engineering, which is kind of tangential to chemical engineering. Um, where I was studying polymer science, which does have some chemistry wrapped up in it. So that's kind of where <laughs> that all came came about. Um, so I didn't start working on carbon reform like as a part of my PhD, but that's definitely where like kind of the the background knowledge, the fundamental knowledge yeah. came from for from my end. Was there a singular moment that you can look back on and you and you go, oh, this is why we decided to create this business? Is there one thing or was it just sort of a collection of things over a period of time? Um, I mean, this business has evolved since we started it, right? Like we didn't actually, you know, come up with this idea when we first met or when we first decided to start a company together. Um, This came out of like market research, tech research, um, you know, doing a lot of background on the space that we wanted to operate in, the type of business that we wanted to have and so on. Um, But I mean, I think for both of us, there were separate instances of realization throughout our careers or academic experiences where it led us to um, wanting to be in the sustainability space, wanting to be kind of health and equity space. um, And then it all kind of came together in this. That's pretty amazing. Um, When you look at, you know, Nick, you sort of said your business development, when you look at who's hiring you, what type of clients do you have? Is it office buildings or is it more like tenants? I'm interested in that. Yeah. So our target customers are commercial building owners and operators um, because they benefit from really all the value propositions or uh, that Joe has talked about. So that's the energy savings, the carbon credits and whatnot can be generated from the CO2 that's sequestered and also the improved indoor air quality for for occupants but within that sort of like a subsector of these um, commercial building owners and operators uh, we are targeting the built environment where there's a high occupant density because a lot of our ability to really make meaningful changes in indoor air quality and energy savings comes from a high level of indoor co2 so when we initially went into this and this sort of leads to joe's point about how we pivoted we thought office buildings were going to be it you're right as we're touring the buildings, people aren't fully back to work yet at office buildings. So I was going to ask about that. Yeah. But for, we went to one, you know, a few weeks ago and there were, it was like a Wednesday at, you know, 11 AM and there were five people in this 100,000 square foot building, probably not the best customer for us, but where we are seeing interest and in, uh, where our first customers will be are, um, is in academia. Um, ah. And I think for us too, that also lends itself to us being this mission focused business because or a mission-driven business because we can um, provide a solution that places like a, a school, a public school, could maybe not normally afford from an indoor air quality energy saving standpoint. So not only do we benefit by getting a really high quality customer for what we're trying to deliver, but you know they can access a tech that wasn't normally uh, accessible. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess, would there be any, you know, when you're dealing with a lot of people, I guess there's probably no residential application to this or is there there could be um and it's something that we're considering um i think where we'll probably go first in that direction is um mixed use buildings because it's still commercial but it has it still has apartments condos whatnot um the tricky thing with residential with the residential sector especially from an hvac 
perspective, one that requires maintenance is that the average residential building owner does not really care about their or fix their HVAC system unless something really drastic happens. So when we when we present our tech and we say, you know, we have a filter that needs to be replaced every six months and we might need access inside your building, um, that becomes a little tricky. Commercial buildings have a standard maintenance schedule, so it's much easier for us to work with. I uh, literally just had to get a new air conditioner in in July. And for part of the process, they said you should get a clean energy audit as part of this and you can save money. And I have to give the state of Delaware credit. I called that that group and they were out in my house, like literally the next day, you know, saying they changed all the light bulbs. And I don't even think most people know that this even exists. So that does make sense from a, from a residential perspective that I didn't care about that until my air air conditioning broke in the middle of July. So, um, so I'm interested in how two people from Massachusetts end up starting a business in Delaware together. How's that, how's that story, the partnership story sort of take place? So I guess we both kind of migrated at separate times. Um, I, I did a little bit slower than Nick did. So I, I kind of moved down south slower uh and my undergrad was in um long island okay so i was at hofstra university for undergrad nice. um i mentioned columbia university for grad school i had stayed on as a ta there um for an extra year and then um worked at a startup out of brooklyn um and then when i went to get the phd i was originally looking at um programs where i could do um a dual MS MBA um, okay. was actually the program that I got into at the University of Delaware. There aren't that many programs um, like that for material science uh, and business. So I already kind of clearly had the workings of like wanting to start something. Um, yeah. Ended up, you know, going on a, a visit to the school and um, realizing like based on my interests, that research was a better play. And so they admitted me to the, um, the PhD program. Um, and Nick and I uh, met through just like the Delaware networking ecosystem. Um, wow. So I had started uh, kind of going to these random networking events that I was hearing about on like meetup groups and stuff. Um, I don't even know if meetup is an app anymore. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, but that was one of the, um, one of the programs that we were both a part of, uh, and I just wanted to make sure, like, I was lining up a job for after my PhD, and so I was trying to meet people, and, um, we met at a, uh, an event at the Delaware Innovation Space. It was one of their kickoff events for the, um, incubator labs, Yeah, and, um, we closed the event down. We were just chatting the entire night and um, Bill Provine had to kick us out, which I'm sure he fondly remembers. <laughs> and, uh, but then cut to, you know, one year later, we had our first lab space there Amazing. Um, as carbon reform. So that's awesome. I don't know if Nick, you want to. Um, yeah. How did, Nick, how did you get down here? It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, to be honest, University of Delaware wasn't on my radar. I was destined for Drexel still. So I was still going to be in the area, but I was speaking with um, somebody who went to Drexel said, and then I said, I was going to do chemical engineering. And they said, go to, go to UD if you get into UD. Um, 
so I went to the best program I could get into and UD continues to rank top in the country for it. And it was great while I was there. I knew I, early on that I wanted to be in the renewable energy space. Um, I got involved with research as a freshman, which was pretty exciting. Um, I got to experience what it was like to publish research as a sophomore or junior, which is pretty cool as an undergrad. Yeah. Uh, but I also knew because of that, that it wasn't for me and I didn't want to devote another five years of my life to a PhD. Sure. Um, but I was also getting a lot of, I was building a network um, in the area even before I graduated and I knew I wanted to stay local. Um, I've been back and forth between living in Delaware and in Philly for the past, well, I guess since 2010 years now. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, when I graduated, I was in the nonprofit space and I was helping build a K through 12 STEM outreach nonprofit in the greater Wilmington area Amazing. Uh, called, called for youth productions. I learned a lot about grant writing, business development, sales from the nonprofit angle, which has definitely helped with what I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, but also just keeping my ears and eyes open for startups in the, in the space. And what I think I quickly realized is. I needed to just to, to be a co-founder myself because there's just there's just something very rewarding about just being at the beginning of something. I'd I'd always been like number two or three at different startups, and it's just a whole different experience when <laughs> you're, you're one of the originators. You, yeah, that, that's pretty amazing. I I find it interesting that a chemical engineer is in charge of business development. Those two usually don't seem synonymous with one another. You know, typically that your your standard straight out of the central casting for chemical engineer is not necessarily someone that's going to go be, be, be in business development. So I think that's fascinating that you you pivoted yeah. to that. I, I knew pretty early on into chemical engineering that I wasn't the average chemical engineer. <laughs> and, and, and I think too, you know, this, Joe and I haven't brought this up too, but I think we're, we both have um, artistic backgrounds. And I think that oh. has sort of complimented our technical side. Um, Joe's been a professional painter for over a decade. I've been a saxophonist for at least, what am I, 15, 16 years now. So that's definitely complimented how we view technical business. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. I am literally the least artistic person you will have ever met. I can't sing, I can't play an instrument, and I cannot draw. Literally, when my kids were like five years old, their drawings were better than mine. So, so, so you didn't paint that behind you? No, I did. I, I'm pretty sure we bought that picture off Google somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, having a business partner myself, I know it's not always, uh, you know, sunshine and rainbows, you know, especially during the startup years. Talk a little bit about your relationship as partners and how, you know, I, we know your, your different specialties, but, you know, just running a business together, some of the highlights and maybe potentially lowlights of that. So I think a really important part of our relationship as co-founders and as friends is that we value um, each other's humanity first. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if one of us is, down or sick or needs a break um the other one is willing almost all of the time to like pick up the slack yeah. um and the really good part about that is it's not always one person that's picking up the slack so yeah. we we actually have like pretty pretty good like cycling of that I would say and I think like the differences in our personalities could get the better of us like mm -hmm. we definitely think about things differently but the way that we've implemented our own dynamic, it's actually much better that, yeah. that that's the case. Um, totally agree. So 
I don't know if that's super vague. <laughs> no, I, I think it's really important when you have, you know, co-founders and you're running a business together that if you think the same way, you're probably not going to get the best product for the business or the best outcome for the business. You right. know, the, you, I'm sure you've had a lot of conversations like, huh, I didn't really think about it that way, but that makes total sense to me. And, and you know, I think that's a huge advantage a, a, as you lead an organization. Yeah. And we, we, we have like kind of the opposite approach to fast and slow thinking. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Kahneman. You can, yep. my, my economy, my economics is coming out. Um, yeah. But but that kind of approach of, okay, here's my initial reaction. Let's both like sit on this and, and see, you know, how we feel about it. Yeah, that's how I. Does, does one of you think more like with your gut as opposed to, you know, just like initial reaction, that's kind of where you end up like 90% of the time. I think Nick is more of a gut thinker. Oh, by far. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm the first to say that at this point in my life, I go with my gut and uh, I like to think that it hasn't really failed me. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think Joe and I too have just like, before even coming to carbon reform, I think we've both done a lot of work on ourselves as people. Mm -hmm. Um, despite being both 28 years old, I think we present in a way that is pretty like emotionally mature for our yep. age. And I think coming out of that way and um, ultimately realizing that however we approach a problem, it's, it's what's best for the business is how we're both thinking about this. And that, you know, regardless of how we make decisions, it's both coming from this idea of, of this culture of sustainability and transparency and all these values that we have. Um, I think that's why, despite thinking about things very differently, we're, we're still able to grow this business to what it is. I, I have to plug uh, one of our investors uh, refers to Joe and I as peanut butter and chocolate. So <laughs> I guess that means is they're very different, but you can digest both of them and they're very delicious together. <laughs> that's great. I love that analogy. That's awesome. That's good. Um, well, you bring up, you know, we talked about it at the beginning. Obviously, climate change is a, is a huge topic that you see all over the place now. Um, the work that you're doing, are you hopeful that it helps inspire other people to sort of take that leap and jump into this space and sort of, you know, kind of get it going? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and ultimately, we need it, right? Like, the world of startups, um, in some ways, I think, values this, like, unicorn individuality a little bit too much um especially in the climate space because like that's just not how this is going to work we're building a new economy like we're building a new system where like certain companies and organizations are going to have to rely on the development of others and you know there's no one perfect solution that's going to save us all so we want other people to get involved. We want the competition to succeed because then they're proving a track record that we can also succeed. And the more people believe in this, we're like fairies, right? Like yeah. the more people believe in us, the more likely it is that we will actually make not only the, you know, the financial impact that we want to, but the climate impact that we absolutely have to, right? Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, I think it's absolutely imperative. Are you seeing more and more people entering into this space, you know, ex with, with great ideas that can really, as, as one whole unit, if you collaborate, you can really have a significant impact? Or is it still yeah. a little slow going? I mean, it, it, it's slow, but comparatively, it, it's fast. Like, I, you know, when I was working on my master's degree a few years ago, 
don't know what it was, 2016, 2017. Um, the terminology was different. The attitude was different, even towards like large scale direct air capture, which now is like, oh no, this is gonna work. This is proven out. Like at the time it was like, this is insane. The people that are doing this are crazy. Yeah. Um, and now that conversation has changed and now we're a little crazy, right? But like in five years, that conversation will change again. So compared to like how long it took other industries to grow, you know, climate is exploding. Yeah. Um, and, you know, hopefully it's not too little too late, right? But I think, a lot. I mean, there, we're seeing a lot of new companies pop up in, in every different niche um, sure. of the space. Yeah, I will. I will add to that and say I think though we are a little in our own bubble, so we are very like well tapped into the community. Right. So when you take a step back and like talk to the non-climate tech person, they know the high-level stories. And in our space right now, that's direct air capture, which is what I always say are those giant f stacks of fans you see in Iceland that are capturing ambient CO two out of the atmosphere, and that's what people assume is carbon capture. And even that like has been going on for over a decade now. So or, it's interesting to see how like the public is delayed to get access to what's happening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or they think of like power plants and it's like, okay, we're capturing right. from power plants, like, which has been going on for many decades now. Um, yeah. So yeah, like the average person on the street, if someone asks me what I do for a living, typically yeah. I open with like, HVAC. <laughs> yeah, obviously their heads will explode. It'll be like, I don't really. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're like carbon what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think this, you, so you guys are technically millennials, right? We are. We're at the very, very end of Very end. So I'm at the very end of Gen X. And, mm -hmm. and you, the one thing that I really, millennials get a ton of crap, right? You guys get beat on a lot, you know, as a, as a generation about, you know, certain things. One of the things I find fascinating is the desire to be entrepreneurial way earlier than, than people in my generation. And certainly, you know, probably the baby boomer generation and what you typically see like Gen X will go work in corporate America and die every day inside until they go, I can't do this anymore. I can do this job better than they're doing it in a different way. And that's how they start businesses. It seems to me that, you know, and again, I'm speaking sort of broad brush, but millennials are quicker to try to start a business to have an impact without going through the soul sucking job years and, you know, delaying it. Is that a fair assessment in my old man, uh, in my old man days? I think there's definitely some truth to it. I also think what something that's changed is how long you can be covered under your parents' health insurance <laughs> back to when like people 20 years ago, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely curious to see what happens when your startup doesn't pick up and you're 27 years old and you don't have health insurance, then what situation are you in? That's really, that's really interesting. I never thought about that. It's actually, there's some interesting research out there to show that health insurance is one of the biggest barriers to an entrepreneurial economy. That's crazy. Yeah. It, the health insurance landscape's changed. When I was 23, I think I paid like 200 bucks a, a month for a, a high, you know, catastrophe policy. But they don't even exist anymore. They're all the health insurance expects them. That's interesting. I wanted to check that out. I think there's something to be said also for just like the, the kind of get rich quick or or get rich at all mentality because we have so many student loans. It's like 
there's no way well first off like a lot of millennials just like have trouble getting hired by those companies there's no job security and if you get hired on entry-level salary like you can't afford your bills yeah. um, especially if you live in a city so it's like okay well how can i make money and do something that like i won't waste away at a corporate job yeah and like have some control over my own happiness and work-life balance but yeah i mean i think that there there's definitely something to be said for like if we sell this company we can make millions of dollars and a lot of people are driven by that idea i mean yeah, you know sure. can't say it doesn't cross my mind right <laughs> um, absolutely i I have a lot of student loan debt. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of the things you, br you brought it up. I was going to ask you, you know, your business seems right for acquisition. Um, is that the ultimate goal or is that just like, hey, if that happens along the way, that would be kind of cool. So I can I, pay off my student loans. <laughs> I think that's changed um, in the last year as, as we continue to grow and build, build the business. Um, the carbon capture market is so nascent right now. Um, and I was just talking about this with a friend the other day. In the entire space, we've only had one acquisition and one IPO in, wow. all, like, in all the carbon capture companies. So there's still so many that are in the growth stage like us. Um, and the more and more we build this company and really create this platform for being this one-stop shop for like decentralized carbon capture, there's really nobody doing it. Right. So at least in my mind, I know Joe and I continue to talk about this, like we're more on track for the IPO route than an acquisition because frankly, nobody has the expertise that we're building because we're building this new industry ourselves. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Not a company that I could think of that would acquire us and continue like everything that we have going. Yeah, and then if there's no companies out there, then private equity is not going to be interested in you because right. you know they're not going to have you as a roll up. You know that's interesting. But I, I, that brings me to another point. You know, you, you head to IPO, you start talking about raising money. You guys are, you know, have gone through raising your first round. Interested in that experience and how that's been. It's been great. It's been sunshine and rainbows every single day, and I love, <laughs> I love raising money. No. <laughs> Uh, taxing. <laughs> I, yeah, I was I wasn't catching on for a second there. I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, what is she doing? <laughs> um, no, no, I won't lie to the people. Um, it's uh, it is really difficult. It is extremely time consuming. It is frustrating because we are pitching an idea, or I mean, not not just an idea at this point, right? But yeah. um, business that we have spent the better part of the last three years building, um, researching, and most of the questions that are coming our way, like we've thought a lot about and we've you know, done the background on and for every win you have 50 losses. <laughs> like it's, it's pretty extreme. Um, and I would say like, it's definitely important to like prioritize mental and emotional health during this time. Yeah. <laughs> very much looking forward to it being over. That being said, you know, we're having success and that's yeah. extremely exciting because that means that we, we get to keep going with what we are building and that people with the cash believe in us and that's great. That's awesome. Um, but Nick, I'll let you get Yeah, your... no, I, I was just going to like, I echo everything you said. And when I think about those statistics about like the number of startups that just fail within the first however many years, this relates to raising, it relates to, you know, product market fit, but 
it's just like this ability to just push through. And I think if more entrepreneurs just realize that, that, you know, there is always, uh, if you push through, there's going to be something better on the other side. And sometimes we go through, you know, three hurdles in one hour, but it's just a matter of like continuing to realize like you were onto something. Also for us, it means a lot to have validation from the industry, validation from major um, like mentors in the space and being co-founders. Um, yeah. I've, I've tried the solo founder route. And when you hit a roadblock, you think it's the end of the world. Sure. So I think there's a lot to be said for having the validation, having a co-founder and just having the grit. The grit is such a huge part of it. I, I think, you know, sometimes people ask me how my industry has a 90% failure rate within the first three years. And people say, well, how have you lasted? I'm, this is my 21st year doing this. And I said, well, mainly because I just didn't quit. You know, that that's really that grit part of it. It makes up a significant amount of it. So you guys are like crushing getting awards right now. You you came on my radar because I noticed that both of you had won the Delaware Business Times 40 under 40. I was fortunate enough to get that. I think I, I think it was 23 days before I turned 40. So I snuck in there right at the end. But then I noticed that you won an award in Japan and you won an award in Silicon Valley. And then, you know, you've got a, uh, a $100,000 grant from the state of Delaware. I'm interested in like how that has to feel. I mean, speaking of validation, that has to be tons of validation, right? Yeah. And it's actually interesting because um, at least, you know, several of these awards we had applied for previously and not won. Um, and so especially like the grants and things, and that kind of comes back to the grit conversation. It's like, there's a certain confidence that comes with just doing this for long enough right. um, and you start to to understand how your messaging comes across you know you, you get really self-aware after sure. a couple of years right yeah. and for us I think it was important to realize like you know okay two years ago last year we weren't exactly where we needed to be for these types of accolades right yeah but now were there and beyond. And so it almost felt like a given for some of them. And I'm, I'm, you know, very grateful for sure. getting these awards and obviously like we, we worked really hard for it, but um, you just kind of gain the experience and the confidence to go for them again, because you know now that you are ready. Yeah. I, I wonder how many people get those rejections from those awards. Probably just a lot. They were probably the same percentage of entrepreneurs that don't make it through the first, you know, five years of business. You're right. You're it's right. like the, the 90% or whatever. It's a pretty high percentage. Um, yeah. 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 It feels personal. You know, it's like, well, this is the thing I've worked on. And like, why don't you like it? But it, there can only be so many people that win it. And, and, you know, last year it wasn't us and this year it was, and next yeah. year it could be somebody else. So I'm, um, I'm sure you you've experienced this with the applying for the awards and going for the round of money that rejection yeah. does actually make you a lot better. It does. It yeah. does. It as really sucks it. to feel it, but it does make you better. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, think uh, as a, as a company and as a person, I think. definitely yeah. there's some, there's a, there's a book uh, called the behavioral investor and it talks about how humans are physiologically predisposed to hate loss way more than they like winning. So I always take when, you know, I get a rejection, I feel that way, way more than I do. I'm like, oh, I won an award. That's cool. That's great. But if I get rejected for something, I'm like, okay, I'm going to burn that place down. You know, I get you know pretty angry about it. So it is an interesting thing about the the human psyche. Yeah. You learn to like manage that emotion, I think. Yeah. Like 
when we get an email now saying like that we didn't get something or that an investor you know maybe likes us for next round but is out here like I used to get this you know that stomach drop feeling yes I don't I know exactly that. what you're talking about like I I feel it and I take a breath through it and then it's like okay it's done next thing yep Exactly. It, I, I always got hot. Like I would get the stomach would drop and I get real hot all of a sudden. It's like, yeah, I got in trouble when I was in third grade. I got yelled at by my teacher. That's that feeling. One of the things I'm pretty interested about your business, you're only one of three 100% LGBT owned businesses in the state of Delaware. That's fascinating to me. I'm For all the businesses that are in Delaware and incorporated in Delaware, that seems crazy to me. Now, I can't imagine the process for, you know, validation of that is easy, but how has that process been? And what has that meant to you guys as business owners? Well, I think we're almost, we're at five now, right, Joe? Since, since we last yeah, reported on that. I think five. 500% owned. Well, I should say, I think it's majority owned. So it's, you don't have to be a hundred percent because it. even if you look at our cap table, we're not technically a hundred percent. Makes sense. Um, but we're, we're close enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I won't go too much into how do they validate that you're an LGBT owned business, but it does get pretty personal. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a lot you different to like, verify. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. You need like references, like letters from friends, friends. and colleagues to say that you are indeed part of the LGBT community. It's get pretty, out of here. That's it's pretty weird. That seems very um, official. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I, I guess there's people out there who, you know, want to find their back door into the LGBT certification process or whatever. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, for us, it's a it's a big deal. We're very, again, it goes to our culture of transparency, like the first slide in all of our presentations have that we are um, an LGBT certified business enterprise through the National LGBT Chamber of Commerce, and that we're a women owned business. Um, and I was just thinking about this the other day, there have been a couple of times where people have made positive and negative comments to that. Um, both resonate for different reasons, but um, I just think, you know, there's also been times where we have people applying for jobs that have seen that and have purpose and have actually thanked us as even if we don't end up hiring them just yeah. for being representative of, of the community. There, you know, when I was <laughs> a, a young gay engineer in school, like, I didn't have this representation in the STEM field for LGBT professionals. So I think it's the least Joe and I can do to sort of show that we exist and we're building a pretty cool business. That's awesome. I love to hear it. Now we're, we're almost running out of time. So I want to ask you one, one final question and they're sort of opposites. What was the lowest point in the building of this business for each of you? And what was the highest point? Do you want each of us to respond to both of those? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's both start with our lows, Joe, and we'll end. On high. I guess the thing is, you're always supposed to leave on a high note, right? Yeah. So we'll we'll you know, start with the lows, and then we'll go to the to the high point. We almost ran out of money. Low, <laughs> 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 like right around Christmas, and it sucked. Um, and I think that was when I was like doing my. I do this exercise where I write down the the worst possible thing that could happen, and that was when I was like pretty close to like that being the reality. <laughs> Um, so that's my low, I think. In, in this, yeah, so. cash flow is always a tricky part when you're starting up a business. Yeah, yeah, ended up being fine. Yeah, of course. I'm sure you slept great. Well, I would say a similar thing, but I don't want to use the same example. So I will say, I, I will say a false low because it's actually changed the way. And I think this is the case for any startup. It's when you find your first competitor. Yeah. Uh, for me, I 
when we found our first competing technology, um, I assumed that was the end. Like, oh, you know, they're a couple of years ahead of us. They've raised more money. We're through. And I think as we grow as people and as business owners, it's it's a huge positive yeah. um, for many reasons. Um, just from knowing what's out there, having, the, again, the validation that this tech works in other instances. So I would say it's it's a low that's turned into a high almost now. That's um, great. Joe, what about what about your high? I hate to have all my highs like be about money. <laughs> um, I think, well, I'll do my like my financial high was obviously like when we found our lead investor for the seed round um, yeah. because we had been going through like many many calls and we were kind of wondering if this was going to happen. Um, yeah. When when we finally like locked down who was going to be our lead and how much they were going to contribute. Like there was this just like sense of relief that yeah. I felt like, okay, it, it's going to happen. It's going to yeah. be, okay. um, little did I know that like the next several months of fundraising would also be extremely difficult, but, um, but yeah, I think that was a high point. And I think like, there have definitely been other, like, I'm a big celebrator of small victories. So like, there have been a lot of like little, like, celebrations that we've had as a team yeah. um you know celebrating like just team member successes and birthdays and like one of our engineers like got a Fulbright and like we've said like just there are different like things that happen along the way and I think those all kind of culminate into just being like really grateful all the time that's great yeah but by, by the way I have this vision of you guys raising money just being in an episode of Shark Tank like over and over and over again pitching these like but on Zoom. <laughs> but on Zoom, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How about for you, Nick? And, and I would say too, what they don't show you is like the three, four hours of stuff that's not aired. And that's what we have to deal with and some because everybody has technical due diligence. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say for me, you know, one thing that pops up is is when we got our first lab space at the Delaware Innovation Space. Um, because prior to that, I mean, we started carbon reform in the middle of COVID. We were a virtual company that was doing all of this online in different spaces. And to really, that was like, okay, this is serious now. We mm -hmm. had raised some money from friends and family and like, we're going to build a business now and there's no going back. The, the stakes are a lot higher when you have your friends and family's money in the business. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. Well, if people want to learn a little bit more about you guys and, and your company, where do they go? They can go to our website, which is carbonreform.com, um, or they can add either of us on LinkedIn or follow Carbon Reform on LinkedIn. I think that's our active, most active social media. We will eventually have to hire a social media person <laughs> to help us because we don't have the time. Um, it's a lot. Yeah, I would say that LinkedIn is, is primarily where we're the most active. Well, that's great. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about how our firm helps business owners with their financial planning, visit riversedgeadvisors.com. To hear past episodes of the podcast, go to happy-half-hour.com. And if you want to connect with me on the Untapped app, so you can see what I rate all these beers, my username is brcarney7. Moment of truth, Sierra Nevada, sunny little thing, citrus weed ale, not a big weed ale person. I liked it. Three out of five is what I would give it overall. I think that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. That means I would drink it again. That's that. That's my system. That it's I have a perfectly my... okay beer. Exactly. Perfectly okay. <laughs>
Nick, Joe, thank you guys so much for coming on. I really enjoyed talking to you and wish you guys the best of luck. Thank you. It was Thanks for having fun. us. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to Happy Hip Hour with an Entrepreneur, sponsored by Rivers Edge Advisors. For more information on how Rivers Edge Advisors can help you, visit their website at riversedgeadvisors.com. If you'd like to connect with Brian Carney for business advice or just to share a beer, Follow him on Instagram at Rivers Edge Advisors underscore LLC.